this evening I'm going to talk about nirvana and ethics. And this will start by reflecting on the questions with which we concluded the talk a couple of nights ago. You may remember that uh, one of those questions had to do with critics of secular mindfulness who talk uh, disparagingly of the co-option of this Buddhist practice by business and other interests, um, thereby reducing it to what is now often called muk mindfulness. The argument being that once you take mindfulness out of its Buddhist context, you somehow isolate it or separate it off from the broader ethical vision in which traditionally mindfulness is understood as one of the steps of the Noble Eightfold Path, for example. Um, once it is taken out of that context, it can then be turned to serve the ends uh, of anything, pretty much. It may now serve the ends of um, increasing profit, purely that, or being making the worker a more efficient cog in the machinery of global capitalism, an argument I've also heard. Now, I'd like to reflect on how we might understand Buddhist ethics. And I want to give an example that I also alluded to at the end of the session last time of um, Buddhist monks in Sri Lanka and in Burma who practice and teach mindfulness, who are trained in this discipline, who have spent years doing these practices, who follow strict Buddhist ethical precepts, but then we hear them advocating violence against non-Buddhists, be they Hindus, in the case of Sri Lanka, many of the senior monks in Sri Lanka were very um, supportive of the civil war on the supporting the Sinhalese, and we find it in Burma uh, today as we speak. Uh, the Buddhist monastic community, um, not all of them, but certainly some, who are uh, advocating the persecution of the Rohingya Muslim population. Both these groups, Sri Lankans and Burmese, argue that since it is the duty of the state uh, to protect the Dharma, to protect the Buddhist tradition, then it's the duty of all citizens, monks or lay people, um, to support the state and ensure um, its integrity against any threats that might uh, be uh, opposed to it. I'm going to give you a very concrete example. And this concerns um, a monk called the Venerable Sitagu Sayadaw. He's probably the most prominent Buddhist leader living in Burma today. Um, he's the founder of dozens of schools, hospitals, universities, and any other number of charitable bodies. He's received uh, doctorates from what look like almost all Buddhist universities in Asia, and I met him when I was in Burma a couple of years ago. Our group uh, arranged to have an audience with uh, Sitagu Sayadaw, and he was a thoroughly nice man, gentle, um, poised, 
intelligent, uh, reasonably good English. Um, here's a photo of him with uh, Barack Obama. <laughs> now, recently, this was just a few months ago, it was reported by the BBC and other news media. He gave a sermon to military officers in Burma uh, that seemed to suggest that uh, the killing of non-Buddhists could be justified on grounds that they were not completely human. And he argued for this on the basis of a text from the Mahavamsa, which is uh, one of the Pali chronicles of the history of Buddhism arriving from India into Sri Lanka. And there's a passage there where it tells a story of some soldiers who had won a battle and killed many, many people and felt great remorse at what they'd done. And some arahants, some Buddhist saints, appeared on the scene and they reassured these monks that uh, since their victims were not Buddhists, then they were not really much different from animals. Now, Sitagu um, has also recently said that if the army needs more soldiers, he'd be willing to provide them with as many monks as they needed. Sitago also was invited to a conference um, in Iran a few years ago, came away with a very positive impression of the Iranian regime and thought this would be a good model for Burma to have senior sayadors, i.e. ayatollahs, more or less uh, holding the state under their control. He's the, um, one of the leading figures in the movement called Bamata in Burma, which means race, religion, language. Uh, this is a movement to uh, protect um, the Burmese race, the Burmese religion, Buddhism, and the Burmese language. Some of you might have seen a documentary film made by Barbet Schroeder, the Swiss filmmaker, last year, or a couple of years ago now, called Le Venerable W, The Venerable W. Uh, it's an extraordinary film. And it focuses on another Burmese monk called Wiratu. And Wiratu spends much of this uh, documentary speaking to camera quite unapologetically, um, explaining how important it is to suppress the Muslims, get them out of Burma because they're trying to take over the country and seduce all the Burmese women, have lots of children, and, uh, and so on. Um, in Sri Lanka, there's a movement now since the ending of the Civil War um, called the Buddha Balasena, the Buddha, the army of Buddhist strength. And this is now focusing its... Uh, Antipathy against Christians and Muslims in Sri Lanka. Now, the point I'm trying to make, which I think has probably <laughs> come through by now, is that um, once you look at the term ethics in its concrete applications in real societies, like Burma and Sri Lanka, it turns out to be a lot more complex than if you simply appeal to Buddhist ethics in a kind of abstract way. And this, I feel, is what is going on in uh, some of this rejection of mindfulness uh, as somehow disconnected with ethics. As a counterexample, we only have to look at these um, senior Buddhist figures in Buddhist countries um, pursuing an agenda that uh, has been condemned by the United Nations as potentially genocidal. So I don't think simply adhering to Buddhist ethics is going to make much difference as to how 
um, we practice mindfulness. So, an obvious objection to what I've just been saying would be that, oh, well, these, uh, obviously, these, uh, even though they may be senior monks, they're not really practicing Buddhism. They're not really practicing Buddhist ethics because if they did, they would be committed to non-violence, for example. But, again, who is to say? Um, who are we to uh, acknowledge as the real Buddhists? These men who are senior representatives of their faith in their countries, who have been involved in a tradition for it goes back hundreds of years, or some Western convert like me, or some other critic of mindfulness, who's never lived in a Buddhist society, but claims to know better. I want to leave this as a question. I'm not, I don't have an answer to that. But from, if I try to put myself in the position of the Burmese and the Sri Lankan monks, I suspect that my voice would have more than an echo of colonial and racial superiority. The expression mindfulness troubles me also. It seems to reflect, the, the, just the, the usage of that term seems to reflect the, the viewpoint and the prejudice of a privileged middle class, white, you often vegetarian, who look down not only on McDonald's, the restaurant chain, but also, although not explicitly, on the kind of people who eat there. Mindfulness, it seems, might be wasted on these kind of people who would turn it to meet their selfish, superficial ends. Um, again, there's many reasons one can have for being critical of McDonald's. I, won't, I don't need to go into that. But again, look at it in the concrete. There are people who can't afford to eat anywhere else when they go out. There are some people in many countries in the world who would consider a meal at McDonald's to be a great treat compared to their staple diets of corn meal and cabbage that they eat day in, day out. Western Buddhists, I've also noticed, are particularly troubled when mindfulness is used by the armed forces, used by the military. They find this just automatically wrong. A kind of the knee-jerk pacifist comes along and says, you know, this is utterly unacceptable. People who kill people cannot be considered uh, fit recipients for this holy Buddhist practice of mindfulness. But we forget very easily as privileged uh, Western people that our freedom to practice mindfulness our freedom to attend retreats like this is underwritten by our society's willingness to protect that freedom by force and violence if necessary. A few years ago, I was invited to be a speaker at the Armed Forces Yearly Buddhist Convention. You probably didn't think such a thing existed, right? <laughs> so I went off to a military base near Aldershot somewhere and was welcomed by the two Buddhist chaplains to the British Armed Services, a Nepalese uh, Lama and a Sri Lankan layman. And I spent the day talking to military officers, um, ordinary soldiers, men and women, uh, people from the Ministry of Defence, all of whom self-identified as Buddhists. Some, like the Gurkhas in our army, for example, uh, because of their traditions. Others, uh, people who were converted uh, to Buddhism for whatever reason. And um, 
At the beginning of my presentation, I recalled an experience I had when I lived at Sharpham. Some of you have been there. It's an estate on the River Dart in Devon. And uh, I lived as part of the community there for about 15 years. And I remember on the 50th anniversary of D-Day, um, I was walking down the estuary and it was low tide. And at low tide in the river at Sharpham, you can see the skeletal remains of some of the landing craft that were used in the D-Day invasion. Uh, a lot of the preparation for D-Day was done in, these, uh, in the River Dart estuary. And um, because it was that anniversary, for some reason it really struck me that I was able to enjoy the privileges that I had of living in a Buddhist community at Sharpen because thousands of young men had been willing to die. And they were killed, thousands and thousands of young men who left these landing crafts into the sea in France and basically were ordered to walk into machine gun fire. So, again, I think we must be careful in how we look at institutions like the military. Um, it's, again, it's easy in the abstract to say violence is somehow wrong. And I would agree with that in many ways. But once you apply the abstract ethical principle and you locate it in a concrete human situation, things become complicated, become ambiguous, become unclear. Another experience I had um, when I lived in Devon was that I served as the Buddhist visiting minister to the local uh, prison of uh, Channing's Wood, right next door to Gaia House, actually. And um, I spent uh, you know, an hour or two every week uh, working with uh, prisoners, uh, some of whom had been committed a very serious crimes, murder and so forth. Others I worked with were in a segregated unit because they committed sexual offences and would, were not safe in the main prison. And this work too, I learnt a great deal from. Um, again, as a society, we tend to project the idea that all the bad people, the jails are full of all the bad people. And luckily, you know, they're kept inside that cage, and we, the good people, are safe from them. And in some cases, that's true. There are people I've met in the jail that I'm rather glad are there. But the vast majority of them are people just like you and me, who, for whatever reason, did committed actions that caused great suffering and pain, and led them to be incarcerated. But in all of the discussions I had with these men, it's a men's prison, um, I was always aware that they too struggled with the question of what it meant to be good. They too had what we would call ethical concerns. They may not have really understood what ethical meant. But with one exception, <laughs> I won't go into that, but with one exception, all of these men struggled with the question of ethics, of, of what it meant to be good, of what was right and what was wrong, what was just and what was unjust. Nowadays, in our secular society, um, the, 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 the role of, of, the, of religion in this country, that of the Church of England, is increasingly limited in informing um, people's everyday moral and ethical existence. Less and less people go to church. The church is not taken terribly seriously. 
there's a, a huge problem with recruitment of um, vicars and ministers, not to mention in the Catholic Church the loss of people wishing to become monks and nuns. So religion is for many people in a secular world no longer the primary source of their ethical concerns and how to respond to those ethical concerns. Of course, Christian values are deeply embedded in our culture and they are present in so many of our media. But it's through, it's through the media not so much the media, but it's through cultural, secular forms that may be influenced by Christianity or by other religious or ethical traditions that I feel that most people today um, imbibe their ethical language. In other words, when we read a novel, when we watch a film, even when we watch soap operas on the TV, the primary narrative, unless it's purely escapist fantasy, the primary narrative of any serious work of theatre or literature or film is ethical. It's about how people struggle with ethical conflicts in their lives and how they resolve them. That is basically what drama means from Aristotle to today. It's about, a drama is about conflict and how we resolve conflict. And the, nearly all of the conflicts that we find in literature and elsewhere are ethical in nature. Let's remember that... Um, Buddha Dasa's little booklet that I mentioned the other night is called Nirvana for Everyone. Everyone. And that includes global capitalists, it includes soldiers, it includes people who eat at McDonald's, it includes criminals, paedophiles, murderers. Nirvana is for everyone. And to this extent, if mindfulness can serve as a way to open up that non-reactive space of mind, even for a moment, in whatever context it's being implied, it can serve to make people pause and stop, which is a very rare commodity in our society today. And in that moment of stopping, to have the possibility of becoming more self-aware, to be able to see themselves in the light of a moment of stillness and clarity. M mindfulness allows moments of personal honesty. Mindfulness allows questions to arise in our mind that under most circumstances, we might prefer to dismiss or ignore or avoid. And surely it's moments such as those that are the starting point of any decision we may then make to change how we live. Now, where does nirvana come into all of this? Nirvana is an integral component of the four tasks. It's the space, the non-reactive space, that serves as the framework for practicing mindfulness and ethics, but itself is not either mindful or ethical. It's neither good nor bad. It's something to behold, to contemplate, not something to cultivate. Let's just put that a little bit more explicitly. The four tasks 
are first to embrace or comprehend, to fully understand the situation in which we find ourselves. To be able to say yes to the situation we are in. And what we're doing on this retreat is very much that. We're sitting here and we're saying, or maybe not in so many words, but we are opening ourselves to ourselves as we are. Whatever comes up in our mind, whatever emotions we feel, whatever stories we run in our memory, we say, yes, this is who I am. This is the situation. This is my life in this moment. That's where meditation begins. The second task is to let go of the reactivity that constantly bubbles up and rises up. Well, not constantly, as we saw, but often enough. And having acknowledged that, having seen that, having embraced that, and again we have plenty of opportunity to see this as we sit still on a retreat, we notice how things rush up and just take over our minds. It might be a, a fantasy, a desire, a plan, a memory, or just a kind of crazy, disassociated thought. And we're off. We're lost. We're somehow no longer mindful, no longer present. We're off in la-la land. So when we notice that, we let it go. We notice it and simply in noticing it, we can allow it to just be what it is. And what it is, is the play of the mind. And the play of the mind rises. And if we don't identify with it, it will fizzle out of its own accord. And in that moment where reactivity fizzles out, or simply in those moments when we are at peace with ourselves, we are calm, we are still, we are open. And as the retreat continues, when we're more and more removed from our everyday busyness, we find that such moments uh, stay around for longer. They're more present, they're more um, part of what we're doing here together. That is nirvana. And the task is to behold that stopping, that ceasing, that stillness, that calm. It's to contemplate it in the way that we might contemplate the night sky or contemplate the vast ocean. And this, I think, is a very, very crucial part of this practice. It's learning to contemplate to valorize, to taste, to enjoy non-reactivity, stillness, quietness. Ethics, however, is the practice of how we may flourish as human beings, how we may work towards becoming the sort of person we aspire to be. That is how I would understand ethics. And again, that's not my idea. It's quite a common idea in uh, modern uh, moral and ethical thought. But it differs from morality, which is in many ways simply adhering to precepts. It's legalistic rather than situational. But I'll come back to that. So nirvana, this non-reactive space, um, allows us the freedom to pursue our ethical goals. It's the space where new possibilities become available or open up. Whereas reactivity, this repetitive, circular compulsive absorption in 
ideas, fantasies, emotions, and so on, limits, constricts our ethical possibilities. Whereas the kind of responsiveness that is implicit in the freedom of nirvana uh, opens those possibilities up. So by freeing the mind from reactivity, or let's just say choosing not to get caught up in our reactivity, one dwells in a non-reactive awareness. And we might call this awareness nirvanic awareness. As we saw in the last talk, one of the words that Gautama defines as the absence of greed, absence of hatred, absence of confusion, is embracing. In other words, non-reactive awareness is what we need in order to really embrace who we are. The danger, though, is to assume that if we're dwelling in nirvanic awareness, which sounds really rather grand, this is perhaps bringing us that much closer into contact with reality. When the mind becomes still, we begin to see things as they really are. A very popular expression in Buddhism. To see things as they really are. Now, that is actually, I feel, a mistranslation. I don't think that the phrase being rendered in that way really means that. It's more to see things, to see how things happen, to see how things work, would be a better translation. Nonetheless, there is a temptation to think that if we rest in this nirvanic awareness without greed, hatred, delusion, then we're seeing reality as it is. And any action that we were to then perform from that ground of reality would therefore be a good act. Um, in other words, if we get in touch with our true nature, if we get in touch with uh, this underlying awareness of nirvana, that will guarantee us, that will root us in something that is infallible. There are Buddhist traditions that follow this line of thinking quite literally and have come up with notions like Rigpa. Now Rigpa... Uh, we could translate it as pristine awareness is one of the translations. Um, it's taught very much in the, the Dzogchen tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. And Rigpa is not the same as our ordinary consciousness. Uh, it's the source of all things. It's the source of samsara and nirvana. It's the big mind, as it were. And also... It's considered to be um, fundamentally good. Uh, Chogyam Trumba, who I mentioned in the last talk, um, speaks of fundamental goodness. He's getting this from Dzogchen, from his understanding of Rigpa, which once again gives us the idea that uh, um, there's something available to us when the mind comes to a stop, and we open our attention, that is transcendent. A transcendent consciousness, a transcendent awareness. It gets very close to what, in other traditions, we would call the divine, or the sacred, or God. And assuming that we were to be able to live from that perspective, um, then everything we would do would be ethical. And this is the justification that is used to explain how certain 
Buddhist teachers might commit actions that to all extents and purposes seem unethical, in fact are ethical because they are acted or they, are, they stem from this ground of fundamental goodness. I find this way of thinking very problematic. Um, I was also taught by my Tibetan teachers that emptiness is neither good nor bad. Emptiness is morally, ethically neutral. It doesn't reveal to us some higher transcendent reality that lies hidden beyond appearances. And the Tibetan school in which I was trained, that of the Gelugpa, rejected Dzogchen very, very vociferously as a return to Hinduism. And whenever we hear words like Rigpa or Buddha nature, Zhendong is another term used, in many, the, in many ways, what we start talking about is closer to the teachings of something like Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta, than it is to the uh, discourses we'll find in the Pali Canon. Now, as I understand it, the teaching of Gautama, the historical Buddha, is radical in that it undermines entirely this way of thinking. It has no room for this discourse at all. The Buddha never used words like ultimate truth, Buddha nature, let alone Rigpa, or anything remotely similar. His approach and I feel this is an approach that is eminently suited to our secular understanding of life, is a way of thinking that places the burden of ethical responsibility on the human ability to judge how best to respond to suffering. The suffering of oneself, the suffering of others, the suffering of the world in a non-reactive way. In other words, it has nothing to do with gaining access to ultimate reality or fundamental goodness and then by, without any uh, difficulty spontaneously living an ethical life. An ethical life for me is always a struggle. And I'll explain why. Reactivity, and I've been using this word a lot, is a term that for me captures well what the Buddha spoke of as the three fires. Greed, hatred and Confusion. Sometimes in later Buddhist traditions they're called the three poisons. But I like the image of fire. In other words, reactivity is what happens when an organism encounters an environment or an object or another person and that triggers like a match, striking a matchbox, the fire of attachment or greed, the fire of hatred, the fire of confusion. And that's one of the reasons that I translate uh, them with this term reactivity. Reactivity flares up like a fire. Now, most of us have little difficulty understanding what greed and hatred are all about. These are relatively straightforward. It's a lot less clear what is meant here by confusion or delusion, moha, literally means something like darkness. 
And in teachings on the three fires, we hear a lot about greed and hatred, but when it comes to delusion, we slip into philosophy. Oh, delusion, that's taking what is impermanent to be permanent. Taking what is um, unsatisfactory to be satisfactory. Taking what is not self to be self. But frankly, that's not really of the same existential order as greed and hatred. That's very abstract. But it strikes me that in a secular, task-based approach to the Dharma, confusion, in reality, has got little to do with whether I think things are permanent or impermanent. The real confusion in my life is the confusion about what to do. The real confusion that I think the tasks are addressing is an ethical confusion. That seems to have the same kind of weight as desire and hatred. It's this sense of feeling bewildered and stuck and anguished by the fact that I don't know what to do in this situation. That's an ethical confusion. And that's what I find really weighs on me and often torments me. And that is, I think, what this practice is very much about. So the problem with reactivity is not that it is morally evil, that when these fires of desire and hatred and confusion rise up, there's something unethical about that. I don't think that is unethical. To witness the fantasy of killing someone, for example, that occurs without any intention on your part, is simply a reaction. It's only if you act upon that that it enters into the ethical realm. As just the stuff of the mind, the play of the mind, it has not yet reached the ethical sphere. The ethical sphere will start by choosing to notice it rather than to just go along with it. In other words, mindfulness. The first step of mindfulness, to not get caught up in that fantasy, is the beginnings of what uh, the philosopher Thomas Metzinger, who you may have heard of, calls ein Bewusstseinsethik, an ethic of consciousness. But it requires that we make a choice to follow that thought or to let that thought go. Ethics begins there. The problem with hatred and greed, therefore, is not that they're wrong or evil or bad, but that they impede and distort our faculty to make clear judgments based on our comprehension of the situation in which we find ourselves. When we're caught up in our likes, our dislikes, our, our longings, our attachments, our fears, that is not a good or helpful space or conducive space to make moral choices. So, in other words, the calming and the stilling of the mind to the point of beholding the stopping of reactivity, to dwell in this nirvanic awareness, is the cultivation of an inner space, conscious space, in which we can exercise an ethical judgment. This, I feel, is what is meant by the middle way. And a very good book has been published this year by Robert Ellis called The Buddha's Middle Way. And this is very much Robert's approach uh, to consider the middle way as the practice of a certain kind of ethical judgment. 
so I'd recommend you reading that book if uh, you want to follow this line of thinking in much greater detail and probably expressed far more clearly than what I'm saying. Greed, hatred, confusion also compromise our autonomy. Um, they render us unfree. We become the victims, the puppets of our desires and fears and hatreds, our opinions, our views, and so forth and so on. And also, I feel that reactivity uh, undermines uh, our courage to take ethical risks. Ethics is not just about avoiding things that we shouldn't be doing, but perhaps more importantly, it's about establishing uh, a foundation in our lives, in our consciousness, that gives us the conviction and the strength to respond. To say something that might not be easy to say. To do something that might be extremely challenging to undertake. But when our ethical judgment is refined to the point that it leads to a conviction that this is what really has to be done, then we'll have a greater inner strength perhaps to do it. Of course, it is extremely difficult to answer the question as to how do we know that action is going to be good? How do we know it will be the best thing to do? The thing is, we don't. And we can't know the outcome of what we say or do. Ethics, in this sense, is always a risk. Morality takes out the risk element by telling you what's good and what's bad. Killing's bad, it's okay, don't, don't, don't do that, problem solved. Except when you find yourself in a real life situation. Then it gets more complicated. We also have to realise, I think, that our many of our ethical norms, what, what, what we think of as good, quite instinctively and naturally, are imbibed from our our societies and the histories of those societies. Uh, we, ex we, we take on an ethical assumption as to what is good quite naturally as we grow up. And this changes over time. I've just been reading, a, a, again, a very good book by a historian called Kim Wagner called Amritsar 1919. It's a book written on the centenary year of the Amritsar massacre in 1919 where a British general, General Dyer, uh, walked into an enclosed uh, space within Amritsar um, with thousands of people at a gathering and ordered his troops to open fire on them. And he killed what's estimated to be about 600 people. Now, in, in Kim's book, um, he draws upon the diaries and the letters and the notes and all of the records, the written records of people who were there at that time. And what's amazing for a reader like myself is, 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 is the idea that people could actually think like that. People who are otherwise good, sincere, moral members of the British government in this case, simply saw the world quite differently to us. The Indians were just the natives. And the racial uh, stereotyping is for us so obvious that we wonder how an intelligent person could ever have held such views. And yet clearly, they did. And I suspect that future generations, when they look back on our time, at us, who like to think of ourselves as civilised, ethical people, they'll wonder how on earth we could have condoned the industrial-scale killing of animals, for example, or the burning 
of huge amounts of compacted biomass, fossil fuels. How could we, how could we have done that? It may be for future generations as bizarre as for me, or you perhaps, to read what intelligent, sensible, civilized people were saying in India in 1919. And it perhaps takes someone like Greta Thunberg, or however you pronounce her name, young 16-year-old Swedish girl, to stand up and say, hey, you're making a mess of this. We need someone, with, it's the younger people, who can perhaps see this much more clearly than we can. And this is, what I'm really talking about here is situational ethics. Situational ethics does not act on the basis of dogmatic beliefs, like suffering is caused by craving or ignorance. But rather, a situational ethic treats every situation in life as unique, every moral dilemma as unique. It's never happened quite like that before. And we're called upon to respond to that situation as appropriately as we can. This is the practice of the fourth task, to cultivate a way of life through our thoughts, our words, our deeds. There's no rule book that we can look up and get the answer. We have to learn to uh, refine our own capacity to understand, to reason, to judge, and then to act. And so in this attempt to um, become the kind of person, the kind of society we wish to create, ethics is often derived from stories, as I've already said. Religious parables, novels, movies. Not from some pre-existent, ahistorical archetype of the good. In other words, ethics, ethical values, are not embedded in some structure of reality, in God's mind, but ethical values are incarnated in stories that we tell ourselves. In other words, ethics and the practice of ethics is an ongoing project. It's a work in progress. Ethics evolves. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.